I want to begin by quoting from uh, St. Faustina, a Polish nun who died in 1938, who had received a lot of messages from the Lord and especially about His mercy. And then from this quote, we'll go into a prayer. So let's begin in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Lord said to St. Faustina, let the greatest sinners place their trust in my mercy. Tell aching mankind to draw close to my merciful heart. Happy is the soul that during its lifetime immersed itself in the fountain of my mercy. Loving Father, we believe that you love us. And in your love for us, you know what is best and what is for our greatest good. And you have revealed through your Son, Jesus Christ, in the sacraments that he instituted, you have given us ways in which you want to love us, to bless us, and to heal and redeem us. Help us to understand the gift of the sacrament of reconciliation, to understand your love, your wisdom, and genius at work through this sacrament. Help us to overcome our fears, our resistance, our hesitancies toward this sacrament that you have given to us for our greater good. And we make all our prayers through the holy and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I want to acknowledge the fact that many people carry wounds in their heart from past experiences with confession. Even though the priest is a sacrament of Jesus Christ, at the moment of the absolution, the absolution, as you know, is the moment when the Lord uses the mouth of the priest to pronounce those words of forgiveness. But when the priest at this moment Sometimes his personality and temperament and attitude have gotten in the way where they were not very good bridges between God and the person confessing. It does not take away anything of the grace of that absolution, praise God, but it can cause a person to doubt that God has forgiven them or it can make it difficult for the person confessing to open their heart with honesty and confidence. So on behalf of the church and on behalf of any of my brother priests, if anyone here today or listening to this talk has ever been hurt in the confessional, by one of my brother priests, I want to personally apologize to you. They may not have been aware of how you've been hurt. They may have been incapable of apologizing on their own. But I want to apologize to you in their place. And I am so deeply sorry if you have ever been hurt. I hope that you will 
Give the Lord another chance and this sacrament that you would come back and try it again. This will never happen on my watch. There's a beautiful story of a priest who died several years ago. His name was Father Lannan. He was the pastor of Nativity Parish in St. Paul. He was Irish. He had a voice that could fill a cathedral. He didn't need a mic. He had this big, booming voice. When I was in the seminary, I and many of my brothers would go to Nativity Parish for confession on Saturday nights. On one night, he was giving a talk to a bunch of young people preparing for marriage. And he was trying to encourage them to go to confession before their wedding day. And he told this story. He was in Chicago visiting a brother who was away from the church for 20-some years and hadn't been to confession just as long. On this visit, his brother said to him, I'd like to go to confession. Father Lannan was overjoyed to hear this. And he knew that there were confessions down at the cathedral downtown that afternoon. So he said to his brother, come on, let's go, we'll go together. So when they got to the church, he said to his brother, let me go in first, and then you can follow after me. On that particular day in the confessional, was Father Cratchit, this old kind of gruff priest who had a, more than one rough edge. And so Father Lannan makes his confession to this priest. And after he gets done, he says to this priest, look, my brother is coming in after me. And if you treat him the way you have just treated me, I'm going to come back in here and kick your butt. Because he's been away for 20 years. And I want him to have a good experience of confession. So he went out. His brother followed. He was in there a while because he's been away for some time. He came out with this smile on his face. He said, boy, that was the best confession I've ever had. So, if you ever have a bad experience, don't tell me who it is, because I might be tempted to go and kick his butt. <laughs> to have a right understanding of sin and reconciliation, this needs to be clearly seen and situated in what lies at the heart of the gospel message of good news, what they used to call the charisma, the central message of Jesus. What is this message? God loves you. God has a plan for your life. Sin has separated us from God and his loving plan for us. God saves us from our sins in Jesus Christ, so that we can start afresh, make a new beginning, and live a new life. Jesus is God's response to sin, to all the forms of broken love 
in my heart and in the world, which are the main sources of our misery and unhappiness. So it is important to begin here because that which wakes up the heart and the mind to what is truly good and consequently to what is harmful, it will always begin with a new and real experience of being loved by God. Whether received more directly in prayer or mediated through the love of others for us. Love is the beginning and necessary foundation for any genuine Christian life, for any deep renewal of our life. And how clearly this was revealed in the baptism of Jesus right before he begins his public ministry. The Father pronouncing with those powerful words, you are my beloved Son. In you is all my delight. Sometimes we need to go back and drink from that deep well of our baptismal grace where the Father pronounces his love over us and affirms our identity as beloved children. St. John Paul II expressed this obvious truth that we sometimes overlook in the first encyclical that he wrote when he became Pope, in the one called The Redeemer of Man. He says in there, Man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible to himself. His life is senseless if love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. Thomas Merton went so far to say that I am made, or to say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence, for God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. Now that may seem odd to go so far as to say that love is our name. But let's not forget, there was a disciple of Jesus who lived so closely to the incarnate love of God in Jesus that by the time he wrote his gospel and penned his name within that gospel, what does he call himself? The one whom Jesus loves, period. He no longer saw himself as just John. No, by living those three years so close to the love of God in Jesus, all he knew 
is that he is the one whom Jesus loves. How many of us see ourselves in that light? Wouldn't that be something if that was the first thought waking up in the morning? We would all have a skip in our step if we did. We would all live very differently. What follows from this reflection on love at the center and foundation of our life? A healthy view of sin and guilt versus an unhealthy view of sin and guilt. There's a beautiful Jesuit priest, Father George Ashenbrenner, who lives even today, who helps us to understand the challenge and the problem that we have sometimes experienced in the examination of conscience and the sacrament of confession. He puts it this way, examination has sometimes deteriorated into an overly negative, moralistic approach that highlights the bad actions of the day in which all too often produces the unhealthy guilt of self-hatred. The consciousness examine that he recommends gives primary concern to what should always be the primary focus, God's love for us in Jesus Christ, present in all the ordinary details of everyday life and how we respond or have not responded to this love. This approach awakens a healthy sense of guilt, sorrow, and repentance. This focus is on the person's daily response to the quiet, urgency of God's love. A healthy, liberating guilt can only come from a genuine experience of the wonder of God's love in our daily experience. It is the attractive beauty and the power of God's love which reveals the inadequacy and sinfulness of our condition while at the same time give us the desire to be so much more than we are today. Seen in this light, sin is a choice against love. Because of the neurotic experience of unhealthy guilt, there has been a tendency to label all guilt as bad and unhealthy. We find this, for example, in some of the schools of psychology. But there is a true guilt that springs from a genuine relationship with God and which does sting, but in the right way. And this is the guilt that is born of love and manifesting the presence of a real and deep relationship with God that takes serious anything that weakens or wounds the love that has become the life and joy of our soul. The focus is not so much on self, but on the beloved, the one that we love and what has wounded the love that we share between us. 
Unhealthy guilt is always anxious, worried about self, excessively fearful of punishment, preoccupied with failure, at times verging on despair in the face of some unrealistic perfectionism. And this, by the way, can come by the way that we have been raised. If we have been raised by a love of expectation, I will only love you if you do this, or you don't do that, or only if you do this perfect, then I will love you. And how many of us would pick this up as we were growing up with some of our parents or those close to us, making us feel that we are not worthy of love unless we are perfect. In creating all these various forms of psychosis and neurosis, in creating a neurotic sense of guilt. Healthy guilt does not despair. It does not disrupt the peace of our soul, for it is more conscious of the mercy and forgiveness of God, which is always immediately available in the crucified and risen Lord. All this says loud and clear that sin and the examination of our conscience is not so much the, the comparing of our life of thoughts, words, and actions to a list of moral prohibitions, but the conscious awareness of first being loved and of a failure to respond to that love. I hope that we will all now hear the rest of the talk in this light. So, why do we need the sacrament of confession? Like all sacraments, they are part of God's loving providence and wisdom. The sacraments are the exercise of the fatherhood of God over our life, who provides for the needs of his children. The sacrament of reconciliation is God's response to the reality of sin and its effects in my life and yours, to all the broken forms of love within us and in the world. We live in a fallen world, and whether we like it or not, we are part of it. And that fallenness is in you and it's in me. St. Paul tried to convey this in the, to the Christians in Rome when he wrote that letter and said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I feel like I'm two people. In my mind, I know what is right. I know the will of God. I know the law of God. And yet in my members, within my lower nature, I experience another inclination tending me in a whole nother direction so that I do not do what I know is right. And the very thing I know is wrong, that's the very thing that I do. 
He says, I don't know what to think about myself. I feel like two different people. And we all have this experience. The experience of sin, therefore, is universal. And therefore, we are all in need of redemption. St. John says this clearly in his first letter. If we say we do not have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then John immediately adds, turning us to the good news. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let's not forget, righteousness in the biblical sense means right relationship with God. Right relationship with God. The catechism reminds us too that the new life we have received in baptism and the other sacraments does not take away the frailty and the weakness of our human nature, nor its inclination towards sin. But, thank God, God can bring good out of this condition and does. In allowing this weakness and tendency within us, grace makes use of this to keep us humble, for this weakness makes us feel our constant need for God, and therefore it turns us more to God and spurs us on to deeper conversion, and better, it deepens our compassion for one another. It is because I struggle with sin and experience the mercy of God that I can be more compassionate toward my brothers and sisters who are also sinners. Sin is a real sickness of the soul, and there is only one divine physician who can take away our sin and heal us. And his name is Jesus Christ, the great divine physician who comes with the oil of gladness, the healing balm of his mercy. Psychology can play a role in helping us to acquire self-knowledge, to help us to know the root causes of our problems. But that is all the farther that psychology can take us. With that self-knowledge, I must now come to my Savior, who alone has the power to forgive and heal my sins. St. John Paul II said, there is a basic deep human need to open our soul to another, to share our experiences of anger, sadness, guilt, and despair. Otherwise, they fester into serious diseases of the spirit. We need to unburden our guilt. And here is where we find the genius and wisdom of God in instituting this particular sacrament. So what is God's response to sin? Christ came into the world to free us from sin. 
God's response to sin is love in the form of mercy. God acts as a compassionate father. This is revealed by the angel to St. Joseph when he said, And you will name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, when he came, said in his teaching, I came not for the just, but to seek and to save the lost. When he said this, he had his tongue in his cheek with a little smirk on his face because there's no such thing as the just. Everyone is in need of mercy. Everyone is lost in some way. Jesus also said, and I love this one, I am the friend of sinners. Even if all others should abandon me and forsake me, I can be certain that I have one friend in the world, and that friend is Jesus, who is the friend of me precisely because I'm a sinner. My sin draws him to me and drew him from heaven down to earth. The theme of repentance that we see in the message of Jesus, preached first by John the Baptist, preached later by St. Peter and the Apostles, is basically the good news that says this. This is what God is saying. Bring your hearts to me and let me change them. Let me wash them clean and heal the love that is broken in you, restoring you to friendship with me, your God, and reconciling you with one another. That's what the message of repentance is inviting us to. How does Christ take away our sin and the sin of the world? The Bible tells us it is by the shedding of his blood. In the letter to the Hebrews, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And at the Last Supper, what did Jesus say? This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. It will be shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. This is also why John says in his first letter, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The book of Revelation, to him who loves us and has freed us from sin by his own blood. And when St. John sees that vision of the multitude in heaven, wearing those white robes, what does the messenger say to John? These are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, if our sins are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, how does your soul and mine come in contact with this redemptive blood. 
the first encounter with this blood of Jesus comes to us in the sacrament of baptism. St. Paul says, we are baptized into the very death of Christ and raised up with him into new life. Baptism removes the stain of original sin and also any personal sins in the case of an adult. Deborah, who's from our parish, who's going to be baptized at the Easter Vigil, whatever sins she has committed as an adult are going to be left in the waters of baptism on that night she's baptized. She'll be squeaky clean as an angel, which is also the effect of confession for us. When we have made a good confession, we become as squeaky clean as the day of our baptism. Isn't that beautiful? Like when our mother used to scrub us really, really hard in the bathtub, and we'd come out squeaky clean. That's confession. This is why St. Peter said in his Pentecost homily to the crowd gathered in front of him, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And what is expressed in the baptismal rite for children? The priest says, God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has freed you from sin. And then when the child is clothed with the white garment, the priest says, see in this white garment the outward sign of your new Christian dignity and with your family and friends to help you by word and example, bring that dignity unstained into the everlasting life of heaven. Now, we got a problem here. Because it is precisely here where we run into the need for another sacrament, the sacrament of reconciliation. For it is the common experience for us that many people lose or seriously wound and weaken their baptismal innocence and dignity. We sin after baptism. What are we to do? Is it all over? Praise God, no. God has provided a way for us to be forgiven after baptism and restored to full communion. And this is through the sacrament of reconciliation. The early Christians, not the ones who came early to Mass, but the early Christians called this sacrament the second plank or the life raft that God throws out if we have sinned after baptism. What support is there for this sacrament in Scripture and in sacred tradition? The most clear reference to this intention of God revealed by Jesus Christ is in the first resurrection appearance in the Gospel of John when Jesus appears to the eleven together in the upper room. What does he do? 
he comes to their, into their presence and he says, peace be with you. And then what does he do? He shows them the wounds in his hands and in his side. The very things, the very wounds that were caused by the sins of the world, he wants them to look at them. And Thomas, we know later, will even touch them with his hands. Isn't it interesting that the very things that cause those wounds, the sin, what comes out of those wounds? Nothing but mercy and love. He shows them his wounds, and then it says, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What is the first gift of the risen Christ with the Holy Spirit after the resurrection? Jesus immediately says, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. Why would Jesus say this to them if he did not intend them to be mediators and instruments of his mercy. God alone has the power to forgive sins, and yet Jesus is giving that power to his disciples, to his church. This gift is also foreshadowed in Christ's words to Peter in Matthew's Gospel. When he said to St. Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed also in heaven. These keys, which represent the authority of God given to Peter and his successors, are partly for the purpose of the forgiveness of sins. St. Paul was expressing this in his letter to the Corinthians, the second letter when he said, God has entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. This makes us ambassadors for Christ, and God is, as it were, appealing through us we implore you, therefore, in Christ's name, be reconciled to God. And we see that this is the practice of the church from the very beginning, even though it took various forms throughout its history. There's this beautiful quote in the tradition of our church from the dialogue of St. Catherine of Siena, who lived in the 13th century. In the book, there are these dialogues between her and God. And God, in one of those dialogues, said to her, knowing the weakness and frailty of human beings who through their weaknesses and frailty fall into mortal sin, thereby losing the grace they received in baptism, it was necessary to leave a continual baptism of blood divine love providing this in the sacrament of holy confession, 
where the soul receives this baptism of blood with contrition of heart, confessing when able to my ministers who hold the keys of the blood, sprinkling it in absolution upon the soul. What are some further reasons for the sacrament of reconciliation that help us to understand why we do not just confess our sins directly to God? First of all, confession of sins is not anything new. This is not a Catholic invention that some people wrongly think. In fact, God asked his people to do this in the Old Testament when they broke their covenant bond with him. For example, in the book of Leviticus, God says, If a man is guilty of any of these offenses, he shall confess the sin he has committed, and he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for the sin he has committed. In the book of Numbers, God says, or the Lord says to Moses, say to the people of Israel, when a man or woman commits any of the sins that men commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person is guilty, he shall confess his sin which he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong. And what were the people doing when they were going out to John the Baptist, to that baptism of repentance that he was inviting? What does it say in the gospel that these people were doing? Then all went out to John to be baptized by him, confessing their sins. So this is not a Catholic thing, even though it has remained in the church what started in the Old Covenant. So, reconciliation, confession of sin, is part of God's express, revealed will for us. We are saved by the will of God, by doing what God asks us to do. God loves us and knows us far better than we know and love ourselves, even though sometimes we are not very convinced of that. And we have, we have a hard time trusting this. So it is better to do God's will than my own will. God's will is not always easy. Amen? <laughs> yes, I can tell you're not Baptist. But we can be sure that God's will is always the best for us. When the revelation of God is hard, we can be tempted to rewrite the gospel or create God in our own image and think that God would never ask us to confess our sins through his priests. And we can become so convinced by our own rationalizations even to the point of believing them, but this is only and usually 
a clever maneuver to excuse or avoid what we are afraid or uncomfortable to do. Yes? <laughs> and we are so good at this. We find all kinds of ways to get around the difficult, challenging parts of God's word and will. Another reason for this sacrament is because of the sacramental nature of the church. And the person who expressed this so beautifully is Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York. Listen to what he says here. This is really, really helpful. He says, If I do not need the sacrament, if I do not need a precise, personal, individual moment of confession, contrition, and absolution, if I can go directly to God without any interaction, without any sign or symbol, or the mediation of another person, where will that ultimately take us? Why would I need the water of baptism to wash me clean? Why do I need bread and wine transformed into his body and blood to nourish my soul? Why do I need an exchange of vows for marriage? Why do I need the church? Why, for that matter, do I need the incarnation? We profess our faith that the Lord still gently and powerfully comes to us in tender signs such as water, words, anointing, oil, bread, and wine, and in the confessing of sins and the words of mercy. We accept that we need the church for baptism based on the Lord's command to the disciples Go and baptize all nations. We also accept that we need the church for the Eucharist, again, based on the command of the Lord at the Last Supper. Do this in memory of me. God is asking us to accept that he also wishes to work through the church to forgive our sins. Again, based on the words of Jesus in John to his disciples, whose sins you forgive, they are forgiven. So in the end, God is asking us to make an act of faith. As we believe that Christ, in the power of the Spirit, acts through the priest in the visible pouring of water to take away original sin, and give new life, as we believe that Christ is acting through the priest at Mass in the consecration of bread and wine, which becomes his body and blood to nourish our life, so we are asked to believe that Christ is acting through the priest to forgive our sins. So reconciliation helps us to understand the why of the incarnation, the way that God bends toward us and meets us as human beings. Sometimes we forget that we are not angels. 
We are not pure spirits. We have also a body. And so God relates with us through the signs and language of our human condition, using a human face, a human voice, a human touch, and human gestures. In the confessional, the priest acts, as we say in Catholic teaching, in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. It is Christ who forgives in the sacrament. But as Christ's human body became a sacrament of mercy at the moments he forgave sinners on the streets of Palestine, so now, now Jesus works through his mystical body, through the humanity of a priest, to manifest this same mercy and forgiveness to sinners on the streets in Mendota and Mendota Heights. St. Leo the Great said it this way, that which was visible in Jesus Christ has now passed over into the sacraments. Sacraments in both the Old and New Testament, God chooses to work through a mystery of mediation. He always manifests his love and grace through visible ways and forms through which our senses can grasp. This is why the sacraments are not self-administered, but mediated to us through one who represents God and the church. This, by the way, is why the church has often discouraged the practice of general absolution. The last two bishops of our diocese, in fact, have really discouraged any parishes to do and continue this practice. This is, use, this is also called Form 3. This was never meant to be used as a general normal practice. It was meant to be used in cases of emergency, like when the plane is going down. And if I'm on that plane, I can stand up and say, folks, make an act of contrition, I'll give you general absolution. If the plane writes itself, a lot of people didn't know this, they are still obliged to confess any serious sins in their life. This is also used in villages in Africa when a priest only comes to the village once every six months. And when they have mass, they come from miles and there are thousands of people. We don't know how good we have it to have mass every day. <laughs> it's amazing. And so in those cases, the, with one priest and thousands of people, there's no way he can hear those confessions. So he gives them general absolution. In our case, there are so many parishes and so many times for confession that it is easy for us, praise God, to find a time to go. The reason for this, Jesus never forgave crowds. His forgiveness was always personal, one-on-one. -on -one. 
And this is why confession, that one-on-one experience, is a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and can give opportunities for deeper healing, for dialogue, for receiving counsel and wisdom to apply to one's life. All of that is missing in the experience of general absolution. And that's the minimalistic approach. That's the cop-out way. But we deprive ourselves of so much more grace by going to general absolution when we can go to the one-on-one, which is called the second form. Another reason for the sacrament of confession is because of the communal nature of sin. There is no such thing as a private sin, even though I may think I do it in private. There's no such thing as a sin that affects only the person that is sinning. Our sin is more than a sin against God and ourselves. We are connected spiritually to one another in the body of Christ. And my sin will always have a negative effect on my relationship with others. Sin damages our communion with one another and it weakens the flow of love and grace through the body of Christ the church. And so repentance and conversion is both reconciliation with God and reconciliation with the church. And so the public nature of confession acknowledges that our sins affects the health of the faith community and shows my desire to heal and mend my relationship with the church. We can see, for example, how our holiness can affect the body of Christ in a person like Blessed Mother Teresa. Look at how the holiness of one person rippled throughout the world and affected in a good way. So also, our sins can have an effect and ripple out and affect others. We see this, for example, in family life. If we hurt a family member and sin against them, its effects trickle throughout the whole family. And it's not enough to simply get on my knees beside my bed and ask God to forgive me. I also need to be reconciled with the family member I hurt, which happens through a public gesture of admitting my wrong and asking for their pardon and forgiveness. Now, when it comes to the confession of sins, I am only obliged to confess all serious sins. I do not have an obligation to confess the lighter venial sins. But it is a good idea, and the church strongly recommends it. Now the first question is, what is a mortal sin? A mortal sin has three characteristics. First, it has to be serious matter. Secondly, I have to fully know that it is serious. And thirdly, to freely and deliberately choose it. 
If any of those three traits are missing, subjectively, it may not be a mortal sin. So in the case, for example, let's just give the example of abortion. I know by the teaching of Christ and his church that abortion is an objectively serious sin. If I know that and I freely choose to do it, I have committed a mortal sin that deprives the the soul of the life of God. The soul at this moment becomes as though spiritually dead. The Eucharist, which can also cleanse from sin, was not meant to be the remedy for serious sin. This is the why of the sacrament of confession, which is best best, um, instituted to heal and take care of the serious sins of our life. But let's say I am feeling pressure from my family to have this abortion. And there's all kinds of fear and everything else going on in my heart. Even though objectively it is serious, subjectively, because of my strong emotions of fear and coercion, I am not completely free. And because of the lack of freedom, there is a diminishment of the culpability and guilt. So subjectively, that would not be a mortal sin. Okay? I hope that's clear. To give you some examples of mortal sins, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, in a document called On Receiving the Eucharist Worthily, and in in kind of giving a, a basic list of what can be serious sin that should be confessed before receiving communion, here are some examples that they gave. This might be helpful just to hear this. These are the examples. Believing in or honoring as divine anyone or any other than God of the Holy Scriptures. Another example, swearing a false oath while invoking God as a witness. Another example, failing to worship God by missing Mass on Sunday or a holy day of obligation without a serious reason. Like let's say I'm sick or I'm taking care of a sick person at home. Then I am dispensed from the obligation of going to Mass. Let's say I'm camping on a mountaintop and the nearest church is very far away. I'm dispensed from the obligation of going to Mass. Another example, acting in a serious disobedience against proper authority, dishonoring one's parents by neglecting them in their need and infirmity, committing murder, including abortion and euthanasia, harboring deliberate hatred of others, sexual abuse of another, especially of a minor or vulnerable adult, physical or verbal abuse of others that causes grave physical or psychological harm. Another example, engaging in sexual activity outside the bonds of a valid marriage. Another example, stealing in a gravely injurious way, such as robbery, burglary, serious fraud, or other immoral business practices. 
Another example, speaking maliciously or slandering people in a way that seriously undermines their good name. Another example, producing, marketing, or indulging in pornography. And the last example, engaging in envy that leads one to wish grave harm to someone else. These would be just a few examples of what would be considered serious sin. Why would I want to confess venial sins? We call this devotional confession. Venial sins weaken our love. It leaves the soul sick and weak and can lead to more serious sin if it is not dealt with. They do not cause spiritual death, but they, as I said, leave the soul weak. Confession is a powerful remedy, but also works like medicine. It heals. It can also work like a preventative, giving us strength not to fall as easily into certain weaknesses and imperfections. Various reasons why we would want to confess regularly. One, it keeps our conscience sharp and prevents it from becoming dull. It helps us keep the little stuff little and from going in, growing into bigger stuff. It provides grace to fight against the inclination to sin. It heals the soul of weaknesses and attachments and helps us make better and quicker progress. Because it's grace. It's an encounter with Jesus. St. John Paul II went to confession every day. Blessed Mother Teresa, she went to confession once a week. Why? Why? You know, the saints were not better than us. They were no better than any one of us. They were just better and more generous in using the means of grace. We make a confession once or twice a year. Why don't we make it more often? If we are serious about becoming saints, why aren't we more serious and generous with the means of grace that God provides? That's the way to holiness and to becoming a saint like Blessed Mother Teresa. Now, I want to deal with some, by end, by dealing with some of the challenges to this sacrament that give people butterflies in their stomach and sweaty palms, okay? One of the things that I have found in my ministry to people over the last several years is the need in so many of us to be healed of our image of God. Healed of our image of God. There are so many people, and many of them are, are adults, that are walking around with various broken images of God, which make it hard for them to approach God and to believe that they are forgiven. If I think that God is this strict demanding, angry judge, pounding his gavel, and I'm standing before him, trembling with fear, why would I come to a God like that with my sins and receive mercy? 
Some people have an image of God that is like a strict, miserly accountant who's keeping a tally of every tiny little minute fault and then gives us the tally at the end of the day and rubs our face in it. Or some people think that God is like that hidden patrol officer off to the side who's waiting in secret, ready to pounce on any violations and slam us with a ticket. Who is God for you and for me? There's what the catechism tells me I should believe, and then there's what I actually believe in how it comes out in my thoughts and my feelings. There's where I have needed such deep healing. This is why I struggled to believe in God, why it made it so hard for me to go to confession. If that's who God is, I'd rather run and hide. And this is why sometimes we are afraid, like Adam and Eve, we will run and hide rather than admit and confess our sins. Now part of the reason is our pride, and that has to be dealt with too. But part of it is our image of God is broken, and therefore we run and hide like Adam and Eve. Satan loves this, and he uses this to keep us away from God. Because whenever I hide my sins and keep them in the dark, they continue to have a power over my life. And we all know this. Confession is a way that we bring them out in the open and into the light. And by bringing them out into the light, they start to lose their power over us. And so does Satan lose the power over our life. This is why Jesus gave those beautiful parables of mercy in the Gospel of Luke, the 15th chapter, to heal our image of God. The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the most beautiful parable in all of literary history, the parable of the prodigal son. What is God like when I sin? Who is the God that I and you are encountering in the sacrament of confession? Jesus tells us in the parable of the prodigal son, that son did not realize how good his father was. When he came to his senses in the pigsty, he said, I'm going to go back home because even my father's servants have it better than I have it. But I'm going to say to my father, please accept me back as one of your hired servants. That's all he was expecting. Boy, was he in for a surprise. When his head appeared on the horizon, and the father saw him, 
And remember the, the parable? He's memorizing his act of contrition. He's trying to remember, memorize what he's going to say to the father. What does the father do? Does he wait for the son to come crawling back on his knees, groveling in the dirt, and beg him for mercy? The father runs at him. The father cannot stand the separation. It's the father who closes up the distance immediately by running. And he barely gets his act of contrition out, the son, and the father throws his arms around him and kisses him. And I would not be surprised if the father smothered his faith face with kisses. And then he throws a robe around him, puts a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, to say to him very clearly that you are fully restated as a son in my house. You are free to go again if you want to, but I have fully, fully welcomed you back. That is the image of God. That is what God is like when you and I fall into sin. And when we come to the confessional, this is the God whom we encounter in the confessional. This is what Jesus is like. And in fact, the moment that I turn in my heart, days and weeks before I get to the confessional, the moment you and I even begin to, to turn back to God, the Father closes the distance and we're in His arms. And then he wants to finish the work that he began in the sacrament of reconciliation. You see, you and I were never meant to wallow and brood in guilt and self-hatred for even a second. And yet, this is what we do. After we fall into a rut, we stand there all day long looking at that hole we just fell in scratching our head, wondering how we fell again. And then we measure the hole, and, and then we beat ourselves up for hours and days on end. When we could be miles down the road, because of how beautiful, powerful, and perfect the mercy of God is, when I fall into sin, I can return to God immediately. I don't have to wait even a second. I don't have to wait until I can get to confession. I can allow the mercy to flood my heart immediately. And then God asks me to make an act of obedience. As he revealed to the words of Jesus, who gave the power to forgive to his apostles, there's one more step he wants to complete the work of mercy and healing through the sacrament of reconciliation, the work that was begun the moment I got to my knees and repented. Confession is really more about God's mercy than our sin. It is more a confession of the praise of God's mercy
It's not so much about the sin I've committed, but about the grace that is being offered to move forward. Our focus should be more on reconciliation and the new grace to begin again. This is why Jesus, in those parables, he emphasizes the joy. When one sinner repents, all of heaven is rejoicing. This is why we should never leave the confessional sad with our head down. Did I confess right? Did I remember everything? Did I, does, was I really forgiven? <sighs> That's a waste of time. All these mental gymnastics after confession that again are ploys of the enemy to make us doubt the beauty of God's mercy? No. After confession, we should do something to manifest our union with the celebration of heaven. In Wisconsin, we always do it with ice cream. You do it however you do it. Put on your favorite song and dance. Go out for a, a nice meal. Celebrate the mercy that you've received because all of heaven is rejoicing at the gift each one of us receive in confession. Sadness has no place in this sacrament. John, St. John Paul II said once to a stadium full of youth, and God says it to us, we are not the sum total of our sins. We are the sum total of God's love for us. We have to reject and renounce the lies in our life that God will only love me if I'm perfect. If I sin, I must first clean up my act so that God will love me again, so that I'm worthy of his love. Or the other lie, when I sin, God is very far from me and doesn't want to have anything to do with me. These are lies. As I said earlier, it is my sin that attracts God to me because when I am weak and sinful, I need more love, and God is there to give it. Pride is what makes it hard for us to admit our wrongs. This is something that all of us have to go against for a confession, because let's face it, it's embarrassing to confess our sins, and yet that embarrassment is good for our pride. It humbles us. And if there's one thing I've needed in my life, is for pride to be purified. That's been the main obstacle in my life. It has kept me from so much good. So God asks a small little price for the great price of reconciliation to humble myself and my pride and to confess my sins to him through his minister, the priest. This is why I go face to face. It's more humiliating. And I need the humiliation to keep my pride from taking over. The more humiliating, the better for me. Because I do not want any pride in my life. I want God to take my pride. So I always try to take the humbler route if I can. Another thing that keeps people away, it's been a while, Father. 
It's been so long, I have forgotten even how to make a confession. And I feel embarrassed to admit this. Or I can't even remember the act of contrition. And I don't want to admit that either. Now, if you know of anyone in this predicament, the priest is always happy to help someone who's been away for a long time. These are my favorite moments as a priest. These are my favorite confessions. I am so deeply moved by the beauty of the grace that has brought that person there to begin with. Oh my gosh, it just melts my heart every time. And I am more than happy to walk them through the entire confession. They don't have to know how to do anything. Just come, and the priest will walk you through step by step. One thing that can help, like here we have an examine, we have these little, uh, right behind that pillar back there, we have different kinds of examinations of conscience. If it's been a while, just take one of those, take it home, go through it prayerfully with the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal the areas of sin and weakness, and then you'll feel more prepared when you come into the confessional. Also, it tells you how to go to confession in those examinations. For those of you who are new here, or if you may come to confession here and have never been, the confessional here is right over here, right, be right behind the choir section. Sometimes people won't come because they don't know where the confessional is. Now you know. Here's another excuse. But, I've, but I'm always confessing the same old sins. What's the use? Imagine what we would be like without confession. I'd rather be confessing the same old sins than not be confessing any sins and those little ones growing into bigger ones. I'd rather confess the same old sins. Thank you. Pope Benedict once said this to seminarians. The sacrament of penance is also important. It teaches me to see myself as God sees me, and it forces me to be honest with myself. It therefore leads me to humility. Even when we struggle, even we have to struggle continually with the same failings, it is important to resist the, the coarseness of our souls and the indifference which would simply accept that it is the way we are. It is important to keep pressing forward without scrupulosity in the grateful awareness that God forgives us ever anew. Yet also, without the indifference that might lead us to abandon altogether the struggle for holiness and self-improvement. Moreover, by letting myself be forgiven, I learn to forgive others. In recognizing my own weakness, I grow more tolerant and understanding of the failings of my neighbor. Another reason why some people don't come, but Father, I always start crying uncontrollably, and it's embarrassing. 
I wish I could cry every time I sin. I wish I had the gift of tears that my heart would be pierced with that kind of sorrow because of the one whom I have hurt by my sin. Crying is a gift. Sometimes I've, I've told people, take those tears off your cheek and put them on a crucifix. Hold the crucifix in your hand and put those beautiful tears of loving sorrow on the body of Jesus, on his wounds, like a healing, consoling balm. If a person cries in the confessional, I don't have to ask them to pray the act of contrition. Their tears are the best contrition. I do not ask them to pray the prayer. There's no need to. Their sorrow is sufficiently expressed. When Peter saw Jesus look at him after he denied him three times, it said that he went out and wept bitterly. I wish I could weep bitterly after every sin. May God give us that grace. Here's a big one. What will the priest think of me if I confess my sins? Let me tell you what the priest will think. The other day, lately I have heard confessions that have been so beautiful. They so pierced my heart by the beauty of God's mercy that I started to weep with the penitents, with the ones who were confessing. And if I didn't have the grace of God to hold me together, I would have broken down and sobbed like a baby. Not because I was sad, but because my heart was pierced by the beauty of God's mercy that is so powerfully at work in this sacrament to those who come to confess. And after two months of hearing confession, the priest has heard everything. There's nothing that you or anyone could confess that the priest has not heard before. Sometimes we think we're the only ones that have that sin. Well, let me tell you, you're not that special. And this parish is blessed because you have a big sinner as your priest and your pastor who understands what it's like to be far from God and what it's like to come back. I'll never forget my first confession. My list, oh my goodness sakes. And these were big ones. We're not talking, you know, pinching my brother. These were big ones. But how beautiful the mercy of God. I felt so good after that confession. And what kept coming to me, I'm clean again. I'm clean 
again. This is what we all desire. But we want the certainty. This is another reason for the sacrament. To confess to God in my mind does not give me the certainty as when I hear Jesus say those words to the mouth of the priest, your sins are forgiven. I absolve you. It's done. I always imagine that Jesus is saying those words on the cross to every sinner who confesses. When he said on the cross, it is finished. After every confession, those words come to my mind that Jesus is saying this to the one confessing. Your sins are forgiven. It is finished. And they have the certainty that the sacrament alone can give that those sins are done. They're over. And every priest knows what it's like to be on the other side of the screen and in the other chair. I go to confession once a week because I want to become holy, but also because I'm a sinner. And I need that mercy of God to keep me in right relationship. St. John Paul II recommended that every priest go to regular confession so that they will be more compassionate to those who come to confession. If ever you meet a priest that is gruff and harsh in the confessional, he's probably not going to confession himself. Tell him that. Father, I think you need to go to confession. Let us not forget, too, the seal of confession. Even though it is hard to confess to God through a human being, it's embarrassing, the priest cannot repeat anything that he hears confessed in the confessional. He's under what's called the seal of confession. If a priest breaks that seal, that is an automatic excommunication from the church that only the Pope can lift and will probably unlikely lift, which means that priest is done. He will never be a priest again. That's how serious the church takes the seal of confession so that you can have the confidence that what you confess will never be repeated. That's beautiful. Some people say or ask, must I confess my sins again if I've already confessed them? The only reason why some people have suggested that is to deepen our sorrow for sin. When some people struggle with sorrow and they become complacent and flippant with sin, sometimes to reconfess past sins can help to stir up a deeper, greater sorrow. But if they've already confessed those sins, they're forgiven. 
They don't need ever to be confessed again. I recommend that it is better not to confess your sins again if you've confessed them already to God through a priest. In order to maintain a right image of God and his mercy and not to diminish it and its power. I love that beautiful Protestant mystic, Corrie Tinboom, who was in a concentration camp during World War II. She had this beautiful way of, of explaining the mercy of God. She used that scripture image that God, when he forgives our sins, he casts them into the deepest ocean. And then she, he, she humorously adds, he puts a sign there saying, no fishing allowed. Because what do we do? We go fishing again. Now this is something very important that I'd like you to remember. And I'm, I'm just about done here. There's a difference between the memory of my sin that continues to stir up sorrow versus the memory that makes me feel I'm not forgiven. When we remember our sins, the enemy would like us to take back the guilt. He wants to point his accusing finger at us and help us make us believe that we're not forgiven. When he does that, just reach up and break his finger. Okay? And reject that lie. It's okay if we remember our sins and that deepens our sorrow. I can offer that sorrow as a penance for my sins, but not take back the guilt. That is gone. Remember the words of Jesus. It is finished. No fishing allowed. St. Teresa of Avila said, when we confess our sins, it is like throwing drops of water into a fiery furnace that instantly evaporates in the flames. Isn't that beautiful? The minute they touch the mercy of God, they're gone. So let us take to heart what we've learned today and let us help each other rediscover the beauty of this sacrament that God has given to us as a gift. Let us end with a prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Have a blessed evening and enjoy the spring weather. Blessings. Blessings.